Well, good morning. It's a sweet thing to worship with you guys today. You guys sing really well, and it makes my heart really happy to think we get to sing forever and eternity together. Thank you, Dwayne. Everyone give Dwayne a hand. Yeah, Dwayne. Last minute call up. He's like, where do I put it? Put it on my left. It's good. You did, it, you did it right, Dwayne. Thank you very much. This is actually my plant, which means it's by grace that it is here today. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'll use it later on in an illustration, but I'm glad to be able to bring God's word to us this morning. If you, do, if you have your Bibles, you can take it right now and you can open up to 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some lovely people. They're, they're kind. They're friendly. They're coming down the aisle right now. It's okay to just do one of these. I need a Bible. I didn't bring my Bible. Maybe you don't own a Bible. We want to make sure that you have a Bible in your home. Please take it home with you today as our gift to you. We're going to be continuing today with uh, the What Really Matters series. Uh, it's a study really on the uh, book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. John, which is, in my opinion, uh, a really sweet letter, a really sweet book that we get to dive into as a church. It gets me fired up, and I, I kind of see it like this. I kind of see it as the Apostle John, who's written a lot of the New Testament, all right? I think of it as his greatest hits letter, all right? It takes some of his biggest themes that you find in all of his other writings, and it kind of condenses them, and it hits them from every single possible angle in this book. You hear things like, God is light, so walk in light. God is love, so walk in love. Abide in God, or be with him. Know him intimately. Be one with him. If you have taken time to read any of John's other writings, you will recognize these themes because they are everywhere. And as, as this old apostle John is writing this letter, the churches whom he loves, he is giving them a beautiful, multiple angled view of all of these big themes. So let's continue on in this series that we've started in. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. As you're flipping there, we need to remember who John is. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the one that, that, that he, he dropped everything for and to follow. He was there for Jesus at the cross like no, no other disciple was. He was there, and it was there that Jesus even entrusts the care of his own mother to this apostle John. At this point in his ministry, he's likely older, he's weathered, he's been tortured for the cause of the gospel, for his role as an apostle. And now old John, in chapter 2 here, is going to give a fatherly word to the house churches he's ministered to. In this word, you're going to see that he's going to get at the heart of what really matters in the form of a compliment and then a hard command for the people whom he loves. You ever had that, by the way? Maybe somebody that you respect? Maybe somebody you care a lot about? Maybe, maybe a person in authority of you comes to you and has this sit-down meeting with you? And they're giving you a compliment, and you're like, oh, man, what's coming, right? Anybody ever had that? I got to tell you, I cringe. I can feel it coming, right? There's just something, oh, man. Sometimes in my youth, honestly, I've been like, just skip the compliment. Just give it, just give it to me. Come on, right? And, 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 that's, and that's something that's natural to us. But what we need to understand, and it's natural to me, the truth is that I need, I need both. 
Because both are being offered from a loving person that cares enough to get awkward, that is compelled by love enough to get awkward to have this conversation with me. It's not fun for them. And I need both the, the message behind the encouragement, the compliment, and I need the straight talk. All of us equally, as we come to this text, he's written this to people whom he loves. But listen, listen, he's inspired to write it so that we might hear the encouragement and we might hear the command, the difficult, the hard-hitting command. So let's make sure our hearts are ready to receive both this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, as we approach your words of encouragement and your life-giving command today, Lord God, we come humbly. We know that we need your words, just like we need food. We need your words like a tree needs water to produce fruit. We want to yield fruit. We want to produce good for you. So we don't, we don't skim through your words. Rather, as Psalm 1 talks about, we meditate upon them together today. We go deep into them today. And Lord God, I ask that your words, your words to us, would resonate in our hearts, would abide in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. Lord, may these words be a lamp to our feet that we might be a people that are a living testimony to you and your grace and your goodness to us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us today as we open your word. May the Spirit interpret these words and direct them to our hearts that the name of Jesus might be lifted high in my life, in every life here, ultimately in your church and in this community that we're called to go to with the good news. May you receive all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. So let's get at this compliment, this encouraging compliment and this hard-hitting command. If you got your Bible, we're going to start reading. So take a look at it with me in verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm writing to you, little children. Pause. You're like, okay, he's pausing already. What's going on? You're about to hear this phrase a lot. In fact, if you've been paying attention to this text so far, you're going to have heard, I am writing to you for these various reasons. He's about to have a few I am writing to you's laid out here. So far, he said, I am writing to you. In other words, I'm writing to you churches. And ultimately, he's inspired to write this to us. Okay, that we, that these churches may have fellowship with him and with God. That our joy, that his joy may be complete. That we don't sin, that we remember the old covenant to love. The old command, excuse me, to love. In other words, he's written everything. Everything you're going to find in here is with a good intent for the reader. And he's writing this to encourage them. What does he say? I'm writing to you little children. Because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. We'll come back to that. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because, again, 
Because again, you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And again, you have overcome the evil one. What do we see here? He's hitting these, these multiple layers, these multiple types of people in these churches from different angles here. He's, he's repeating. He's got two messages for each of them in that section. Two messages of encouragement for each of these guys. What do we see? We see here first little children. We see little children. In this way, he's talking to young believers. Young believers, those who have started out, those who have had their sins forgiven, who have come to, here, know the Father. Come to have right relationship with God. Then you see fathers or, or mature believers, those who have come to know him who's from the beginning, times two, right? So they know, they, listen, they know God. Isn't that the mark of what maturity really means anyway? What is a mature Christian? It's somebody who knows with and walks with, who leans on daily their father. Amen. Do you know him? It's a mark of maturity. It begs the question then, how do you get to know God well? How do you move? How do you grow from being a young believer to a mature believer? How does that happen? Let's look at the young men, the, the, the growing believers that are in between. We see in verse 13, it says this. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. In other words, you see right there, they have overcome Satan. All right, if you aren't shocked by that, you ought to be. Because Satan is powerful. But our God is more powerful, amen? Satan is a strong, a powerful fallen angel. He is the master tempter and accuser. He is the father of lies with which he accuses you every day. He tempts you every day. How then do you overcome him? Verse 14, the second section, it talks about these young men, these growing believers. It says this. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Why are you strong? And the word, listen, the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. How do they overcome the evil one? They get a strength that's not their own. They are strengthened by the word of God that abides in them and they overcome the evil one. If you're familiar with John's writings, you'll probably be familiar with this concept of, of abide. John 15, the gospel, that he, he's recalling what Jesus has taught them in his life alongside Jesus. You hear abide, abide, abide over and over and over again. You know, you know if you've read this text that abiding in and with God and letting his word abide in you is the key to your strength. It is the key to your growth. It ultimately is the key to your victory over the evil one. In other words, the ability to know, the ability to grow, and the ability to overcome is found in a proximity to a person, to God. When we hang out with him, when we hear his words for us, when we interact with them, pray them back, he grows us as we come to know him. We know him, we grow like him, and ultimately as we hang out here in God's word, we are equipped 
by him for the fight. It's the sword of the Spirit. A little later in the Gospel of John in chapter 17, he, Jesus is saying these things as he's praying for those whom he's leaving behind. He's about to die on the cross and he's praying for these 12 guys and here's John with his head on his chest and he says this. He says this, sanctify them, make them holy, make them right, make them more like God himself. Sanctify them by the truth. Listen, your word is truth. Think about that for a second. If Satan is powerful because he's the king of liars, then of course it makes sense that we need the truth to fight against his lies of accusation and temptation. The Bible, it says in Ephesians 6, is the sword of the spirit with which we can fight against the accuser, which we can fight against the tempter. Ultimately, even the Bible is that scalpel, the double-edged sword that is so sharp it can penetrate even to our hearts and reveal even the lies that we believe there according to Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, Christian, hear me rightly. You want to pro progress? What is it talking about here? What is it talking about here? What do, you, what do you need today? What is the tool you need every day? What's the strength you need, to, you need to get in you every single day? You need the word. Why every day? Because today you're going to hear his accusations, are you not? Maybe you're even hearing them right now. You're no good. You'll never be good enough for God. Why do you even bother reading that? You'll never understand it. You're likely to be tempted today. Literally, you're likely to be tested and tempted today. What well, temptation might you encounter later today? Maybe it's going to be entertainment versus holiness. Maybe, maybe right now you're in the midst of one of the hardest tests of your life, of cancer. And today your heart is tempted to wander from trusting in God in the midst of the storm. Maybe your child is going to test your patience today and your resolve to respond in love. Maybe, maybe you're going to be offered a job today that will get, grant you more money It'll grant you more money, but you know it might lead to compromising and shepherding your family. Maybe tomorrow you could cut corners. Maybe you can round up on your time card or you can fudge your taxes. After all, you've worked hard. Things are, things are tight right now. Maybe later today it's going to be Netflix or news versus time with God or time with your spouse or time with your family. We need this word to combat those temptations. To remind us of what's true and what's worthy of our affections. Last note on this section. Some people see this and it's like you're talking to fathers. It's saying young men. I got I to gotta, I gotta say this. I love that it says young men. Why do I love that it says young men? Because literally I know nobody that is more insatiable, more hungry than young men. And I'm not just talking like food hungry, right? Because we know if you have that young man over at your house, he will root out food in a matter of minutes. Why? Because he's growing stronger, right? You have him and his buddies over, it's just a write-off. 
They're not even just hungry in the way that they, they, they pursue food, but they are actually, they're hungry in life. They have a tendency to fixate on things. Have you ever tried to talk to a young man when he's watching TV? It doesn't happen. Nothing else exists, right? What about they're playing a game? Nothing else matters but that game right now. What about, what about the young man that's learning a new skill? What, call it whatever. Skateboarding doesn't matter. All the other priorities suddenly move down the list. This new skill, I must develop it. It consumes me. It's something I want to do. No matter what else I had to put aside, I get it done. On the other hand, a young man is either all in or you see this, a young man can be all out. Tuned out entirely. I've got a question for you, children of God. Which are you? Are you insatiable? Are you hungry for the word of God? Are you intent on developing your skill with it? Or are you just tuned out? somebody else's thing. It's not mine. Friends, hear me. Hear me, friends. The Bible gives no remedy for maturing, for knowing God, for growing to know him better apart from getting with and abiding in his life-giving word. There is no victory over the accuser and the attempter apart from it abiding in you. You need to be armed with it. Do you hear the encouragement that he has for them? Hey guys, you're growing. You're overcoming the evil one because you're in the word. Is that true of you? The more that you get to know him, the more that you have proximity to that person through his word the more you will progressively see that the evil one is being overcome in your life. First, the encouragement, you're in the word. You're growing, keep doing that. Second, the hard command. And again, it's a command with their good in mind. It's a command that ultimately has their eternity in mind. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. It says this. Do not, what's that word? Let's try that again. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's, what's happening here? We see here that firstly, he is targeting their affections. He is targeting their heart, and he does this on purpose. In Luke 6, verses 43 through 45, Jesus says, for a good tree, uh, excuse me, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, listen, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure in the heart produces evil. 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Who's heard that before? Anybody heard that before? You've heard this verse before. What's within is going to come without. We, we talk and use this language from fruit to root around here. And, and maybe you've heard this. This is my tree that's surviving by grace. All right? This tree is only going to be healthy if its roots are healthy. This tree is only going to produce fruit in season if it's got its roots in the right thing. This tree right here, if its heart is right, that which is within the source of the fruit, the fruit will be right. In other words, my, my seat of my wants, what I want in my life is my heart, it's my root, and it feeds my thought life where I look and ultimately determines where I go and what I do. In other words, this, my heart has a set of wants. It has desires. And then it leads me to act upon those desires. My roots, my heart, will determine my fruits or my actions. You can see here his heart targeting command. Do not love, what's, that? what's next? Do not love the world. This can sound confusing. I mean, wait a second, wait a second. Don't love the world? Isn't it because he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Like, I've heard that passage before. Doesn't God love the world? How, how, what, what are you talking about here? God has loved the world, and that's why Jesus came and died in the first place. It's not saying don't love people. It's not saying you're not allowed to enjoy a good meal or hang out with friends or enjoy marriage vacation, but rather, as the text goes on to clarify what he means by the world, he, there is a, he's, he's warning them, there's a, there's a consuming, there's a desire, a craving, a lust one can have for the created, the things of this world versus the creator of this world. Really, he's, he's saying you, you can seek satisfaction in the creator out of love for those created things at the expense of a love for the creator himself. Expense of the creator's instruction. Jesus, when talking along these lines, gives an either-or statement in Matthew in his Sermon on the Mounts in chapter 6. He says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon, earthly treasures, the things you can accumulate here. You can't serve him and you can't serve his creation. Make no mistake, though, you are wired to want. Our design is to desire satisfaction. We're all like the water pump that I went and bought because my basement flooded, okay? We, we, we get plugged in. We're awake. We are starting to suck at something, all right? We want to take it in, and what we take in, we're going to put out, okay? That is what we are designed to do. Make no mistake here. We are designed for a satisfier that you are seeking, 
You are designed for a place that he has designed you for, a place with the satisfier. He makes it good. But due to our sin, we've been separated from our satisfier and we are all left longing in an unsatisfying, broken place. So hear me, you will want in this world. It's not, it's not bad to want even in this world. But be careful because what you want, what you pursue will master you. In other words, you will want, but you will also serve whatever it is that you go after. The question then is this for you today to think about. Is what do I love? That's a question that, that the, the readers reading this would have thought as, they, as, as the old apostle John is writing this. What do I love? What do I want? What do I what? What do I crave? What am I going after? Do I want God or do I desire, do I lust after the flesh? See, your heart is crying out, I want satisfaction, and you have an option. Either you are going to place your faith in your satisfaction in your Savior, Jesus Christ, or you're going to place your satisfaction you're going to go after another satisfaction found in the created things. You're going to either, you're going to trust him for your comfort, for your security, for your approval, for your power, for your success, whatever it may be, or you're going to trust, you're going to set your gaze upon another thing. Let's, let's look at this. It leads to us seeking God. All right. If I, if I want that, I'm going to go after that. If I want this, I'm going to go after that. I'm going to set my gaze upon that. It leads us to seeking God or desire of the eyes. Desire, desire of the eyes is seeing something and being convinced in your mind that that is the solution. That's going to satisfy me. If I could only get on the other side, if I ever lost, I would lose my satisfaction. Do you see it? We set our gaze upon that which we believe in our hearts will satisfy that longing, that desire that we all are built for. And you will inevitably lay your eyes on that which you believe to be the solution, the Savior. And therefore you will ascribe glory to Christ, the Creator, or something else, that which is created. You might wonder what this looks like. I can give you a very simple analogy. If you think about food, maybe a cookie. Maybe you're like cookies? Chocolate chip cookies, baby. All right, okay. So cookies. That cookie will give me comfort. That's going to satisfy what's going on below the surface here. Versus Christ is my shelter and my comforter now and to come. That's really easy, right? Okay, cookies. Pick on cookies. All right. What about a parenting model? A parenting model. Hear me right. I'm not knocking parenting models, but some of us will place all of our hope for control of our kids on a parenting model versus Christ's God as the sovereign one over my family, the one that my kids really need in their heart. God, the one that can actually establish peace in my heart about what's going on in my home. Maybe it's saying, hey, hey, those people, those people, if I get in with them, if I'm accepted by them, 
that my longing, my desire for, for acceptance will be met. The problem is then you're enslaved, right? By their acceptance. If I say that joke, I'll be accepted. Versus Christ has accepted me. And one day I long to hear his well done. Maybe it's a promotion that you believe that you need in order to make a difference. You see it? Power of influence in this world. Versus Christ gifts me to be on the mission that he has called me to be on while he's got me here on this world. You see it? The desires of the heart. I want satisfaction. Desires of the eyes, eyes, that's going to be my solution, my savior, my satisfier. And lastly, it ultimately leads to glorifying or glorying in God or glorifying in the pride of life. What does this this concept mean? The pride of your present state, your livelihood, that which you possess. It's like saying this. It's like saying, I've got it. I went after it. I got it. I'm something now. Or on the other side of this, I can't get it. I'm nothing. It's thinking, it's thinking that you got it and hanging on to it. Like it's the satisfying Savior. Do you see what you're hanging on to? The thing you can't live without is your idol that you're clinging to. So you can't imagine living without it. In fact, if you can't have it, it will ruin you. Let me give you some examples of how this whole fruit to root thing works. Let's, let's, let's play this out a little bit more and it might hit a few more of us in this room. If I'm after comfort, all right, my, my heart, I might look like a man that, whose heart is longing to feel the end of pain, to experience bliss again. You know, you know you're created for it. It's not a bad thing to want it. But then that man takes that desire and then sets his eyes upon a beautiful woman whom he marries. And in the end, his his desire for bliss, his, his desire for satisfaction, for comfort is then taken and placed upon this woman and she cannot carry the weight of that. She will fail in creating the perfect environment for his highs that will finally last. Eventually, that man might be surprised at what else he goes after in order to achieve that comfort, that pleasure, that bliss that he is seeking that was lost because of the curse. You see, he didn't realize it, but when he was a young man, he became enslaved by a want, a desire. And he believed that something that is created could could fill that gap and it produced a fruit that he never thought would be in his life. Some of us desire control because it's a dangerous world. It might look like the lady who, who desires, who longs for, hear it, that wants to feel secure and safe in this world. So she convinces herself that fill-in-the-blank people are the most safe the most secure in this world. It might be wealthy people. 
It might be married people. It might be a mom. It might be a leader. It might be structured people. It might be private people. These are the most safe, the most secure people. And in the end, she spends her days, she works with her strength, she works her life away to attain a false sense of security and control that she was meant to find in her Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, fear and desire for control has enslaved her. There's many here that long for approval. Maybe your your desire at work is to finally get to a respected status. You might attach that to a title. Maybe you just maybe you just attach it to a skill set, to a well done from a customer. And having arrived at that after years of work, sometimes we can forget God's provision to get there in the first place. And we can get prideful. We can take that into ourselves and then we can look down on others. We can expect them to respect us, to affirm, to approve of us. Which if the first sign that we're not going to get it could result in us belittling, discouraging, even disrespecting our coworkers. A spirit, a critical spirit has come because we have been enslaved. That's the fruit of being enslaved to the longing for approval, for respect. On the other end of the spectrum, maybe, maybe you're a dad here sitting here today that wants to be respected by your family but is embarrassed by what you think is an inability to articulate God's word to your spouse or to your kids. You feel like you just fumble your way through and, and there's no way they can respect you if they see that you can't. So you get anxious about it. The idea of opening up your Bible with your kids, with your wife, it freezes you up. So in, this, in your mind, you rationalize that that's somebody else's responsibility. That's something for another person instead of entrusting God's call and God's ability to gift you for your call. What's the fruit of that? You never lead your family spiritually. Your kids, your wife are are starving for that. You're producing a fruit because you are looking for approval. And approval has enslaved you. Maybe it's power. Maybe, Maybe it's the idea that success will come. With my kids turn out, success will come. Maybe success is happening early. It leads you to, to put all your trust in this formula that you, that, you, that you have for raising up your kids and you now look down upon other people for their parenting styles instead of humbly recognizing that God's the one who is after your kid's heart. On the other hand, maybe it starts to go bad in the teen years. So you cling to, you try to, you try to get them back on track because it's affecting the way that you look or the way that you perceive yourself as successful or not. You see it, the power, the success, power of influence has enslaved you. You can't even imagine living with yourself if they don't turn out a certain way. On the low end of pride, it might be look like a person who's longed for being successful at work. Maybe it's a particular job that they have tried for and never achieved. So they start to doubt their reputation, their ability. Even they label themselves a dud. 
And therefore, in the church, as they're asked to step up into leading in the church, because they've already judged themselves to be inadequate, they never, they never step up in their leading. Friends, can I tell you how this works in my life? Is that okay? In my life, I long for this idea of, I'll put a label on it, be a good pastor, be a successful pastor. Sometimes it, uh, it causes me to, to work really hard, to feel like if I show up at my job that I have to, I have to get right at it because there's no time to be wasted to the point where I can actually not start my day in dependence upon God for the things I need to do that day. Now, put this in context. My whole job is to lead people to Christ for the, as their sufficient one. My whole job is to see that people adore Jesus, worship him, and hang out with him. How can I, in my own strength, be convinced that somehow my efforts are sufficient in and of myself? but I do. That's my high pride. On the side of low pride, sometimes, I'm, sometimes guys, I'm scared. I'm scared of preaching. What happens if I fail? You see it? Will I be a good pastor? So it can cause me to cling to my own ability. It can cause me not to step up when I have the opportunity. Do you see it, it produces a fruit in me? Maybe in your life it looks like a person who gets up every day and thinks that you have the power to live a godly life on your own. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you're helpless on your own. You need him working in and through you. It's, it really, it sounds silly when we say it like that, but when we don't pick up his word and we don't get in prayer and we don't live dependently on him, that is what we're saying every day, that I can somehow by my own will, by my own strength, be sufficient. I have the power to do that in myself. It sounds silly, but we do it every day. I have done it myself. Would you admit that you do that? What do you do? Let's look at your fruit. Do you see it? When I ask, what do you do? I'm actually asking, who do you love? Where's your heart at? What's your heart's affections after? What do you want? For what you want will produce what you set your gaze upon and what you think about, and ultimately it'll determine what you do and why you do what you do. This is why Jesus can say in John 15, again, the gospel, the gospel of John, he's recording this for us, if you love me, if you want me, if you desire me, right? If you love me, you will obey my commands. You obey my commands. Do you want him? Verse 17 says this. Let's check it out. The world is passing away along with its desires, right? The world is passing away along with its desires. Make no mistake, sin, is, sin has a high, right? If sin ain't fun, you're not doing it right. Okay? The things of this world do seem to satisfy for a time. The temptations it offers seem really good. But its treasures, its pleasures do not last. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this, a healthy tree cannot 
cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, listen, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Earlier on in his sermon, he says this in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. You go after the things of this earth, they're going to be destroyed. They're temporary. And where thieves could break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Where thieves do not break in. They cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your your longings, your desires. Romans 8. I've got a good word for you. You've got to read it at some point. Romans 8, 18 through 25 suggests that you might groan inwardly as you're producing these first fruits in your life. It may not be easy to get in the word and, and what he does in the word in your life may get uncomfortable. You may be temporarily groaning inwardly as you await the final satisfaction. But as you're awaiting that satisfaction, the glory of the eternal reward is more than worth far outweighs any temporary struggle, any temporary suffering, any temporary difficult it is to get with God today. It is far more worth it to produce his fruit is always worth it. To store up treasures in heaven is always worth it because it cannot be taken away and it is way better than anything the earth has to advertise to your eyes. Verse 17 continues, says this, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now this on its face can sound like you're talking about earning salvation, but it's already been made clear in 1 John. That's not the point. Salvation is indeed by grace alone, through faith alone, but, but faith will always produce new and good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is said a lot of times. 10 is rarely said. It says this in 8 and 9 and 10. It says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, you didn't earn your salvation. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? For good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I need to take a pastoral pause here. I need to step aside and, and just address something. Some of, us, some of us need to understand the way the apostles saw saving faith. Nowhere in the New Testament is it in a perfect way of praying or a specific ritual. It's not found in a magically worded prayer of sorts. There's no record of this in the New Testament. Nor does it come by performing these rituals. Though indeed, upon your salvation, you may have prayed. And upon your salvation, you may have performed some form of ritual. But in the New Testament, salvation is not talked about in those ways. Salvation is talked about in the way of believing something different. Which leads to radical, radical repentance. In other words, before I believed this was the right way. In my mind, that's worth pursuing. That's worth going after. This is the way I live. But then, boom, I get hit. And I believe that Jesus is Lord. He is my Savior. He is my Satisfier. And I'm going, whoop, I'm going this way. It's not going to be the same anymore. In fact, they use terms like dying to the world and living for Christ. 
I can't go that way anymore. I got a new love. I got a new life. My faith will produce fruit, new fruit, good fruit, that which lasts. To the Apostle John, we got to remember who's writing this, who knew Jesus, who understood what it was to abide, to be with him, to have intimacy on a level that maybe other people wouldn't understand. In his mind's eye, it is impossible to fathom one abiding with God Loving God in a relationship with God. Who is light. Okay. And continuing to abide in sin and darkness. That which he witnessed his savior, his friend, die for. To put an end to. Do you see in his mind, you, you can't do both. You can't willingly continue in. Though as a Christian, you may have setbacks and you will. Genuine faith sticks it out, dies to the world, and yields a crop of righteousness. Yes, Jesus did talk about those who wither due to the heat of life. But this is often due to a conditional or contractual faith based on a fault false narrative that he's going to make your life better now. You hear it? Your better life now. That's a prosperity gospel that some of us believe in and so we shrink away when things get difficult living for Jesus as if satisfaction, as if ease in this lifetime is the point of your salvation. He also talked about those who are choked out as if their, as if their saving power was in Jesus but the satisfying power is in the world. Do you see it? I'm saved by him, but I'm satisfied by this stuff that he created. As a result, as a result, it's as if we're riding this make-believe fence of faith. Yeah, Jesus is my savior, but he's not my satisfier. I surrender to him as my Lord, maybe. But I still want these things. Instead of trusting the creator, they trust his creation as their satisfier. This results in living as if you can say sorry for the sin Christ died for and be content to live in, to abide in that which he died to kill. If you're unaware of what I mean you need to come and talk to somebody afterwards. If you're confused by this statement, please, please, please don't leave this place with those questions. Ask. But if you're unsure as you sit there and as I speak of your own salvation, don't rush past it. Don't push it aside. In fact, the word in 2 Corinthians 13 and 1 Peter 1 talks about this idea of examining yourself to see if you are in the faith. Does your spirit, do you love? Do you cry out for the Father, Abba? Does your faith have fruit? Do you love him? Do you obey him? Or are you still lusting after, consumed with a passion for the treasures that this world will offer you? He's laid his life down for your sins and mine. 
that we might die to them and live in him, abiding in him, producing new and lasting fruit. He provides for and ministers to us in the meantime, in these dark, difficult days, in this fallen, broken place, his resurrection remains a testimony to everybody here that one day it won't be broken again. One day your heart that is longing for satisfaction will be met with the satisfying Savior's presence forever. It's what your heart is longing for. Every human heart is longing for. It's not stuff that we're meant to find satisfaction in. It's him that we're meant to find satisfaction in. It's what all human hearts are made for. Your friend, listen to me. If you aren't sure, you can trust Christ today as your Savior who died for those sins and as your satisfier that allow you to live in him. You can trust in Christ alone. Place your faith in him alone today. The day's, today's question really for all of us is this. You ready? You haven't been paying attention. This is the time to dial in now. Do you want him? Do you want him? Do you long for, do you aspire for his presence today and forever? Do you want him? Do you want him? Then there is a key for everybody here today. It's this, listen. Abide in him. Abide in him. Be in love with him. And make sure his word abides in you. Friend, it is your daily tool. You need it today to fuel right wants, thoughts, and ultimately actions to bring about the right reward. You need the spirit of truth to illuminate the word of truth to your heart. You need to get this in front of you and you need to allow him to get it in you because he wants to use it like a scalpel on your heart. He wants to use it like a knife that's getting those branches that aren't bearing fruit out of the way. And he wants to use it like a sword to defeat the enemy that wants your death. Why? Because he wants your life. John records Jesus putting it this way in his last hours before the cross as he's hanging out with Jesus, leaning against him, Jesus says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but rather you keep them from the evil one. He's praying to his father. They are not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word, you're here, your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified, set apart, made holy in truth. You want to be a tree that bears good fruit? John 1 Psalm 1, the entire word of God echoes this. You need to, listen, abide in his word. You won't know, grow, or overcome without it. It makes sense. If you want to know, if you want to desire, if you want to have a love for God, you got to be with him. You got to hang out with him. 
What's beautiful is this. James 4 says, as, as we are broken, as we draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Draw near to him. He'll draw near to you. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Just as I pray, I'm going to be quoting from Psalm 73. I'm going to pray accordingly. Psalm 73, verse 16 through 17 says this, but when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to, be, seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of the Lord and discerned their end. Father, this world is enticing to us and the people of the world seem to have something good for a time. Father, we know it's for a time. We know those treasures will be destroyed. We know the desires of the world come to an end. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Lord God, may we, may I see you as the ultimate supreme satisfier, the desire of my life. May you be the desire of our hearts. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord God, help strengthen your people's resolve today. Help strengthen my resolve today. Be our strength in this fight. Verse 24, please guide me with your counsel until you receive me to glory. On this narrow road with a great ending, Lord God, I pray that you would be our guide. Your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Verse 27 through 28, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. We don't want to be like that, Lord. We don't want to hear, away from me, I never knew you, Lord. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all his works. Lord God, may we be a congregation filled with people who love, love you, that walk with you, that are near you daily. And Lord God, forevermore. Lord God, thank you that you have supplied everything that we need in Christ. You have given us your word. You've given us your spirit to understand it. And you sent us out into the world on mission with it. Lord God, I pray that I be in the congregation of those who overcome. Lord, there will be trials, there will be tribulations, but we can all fear not because Jesus has overcome the world and he's set before us a hope of ultimate satisfaction, of being in your presence, in your place forever with you. And Father God, I pray that that would spur us on to hang out with you today, to hang out with you tomorrow, to long for you every single day, that you might have your work in us, that you might do your work through us, that you might build up a church that is sanctified, set apart for you, that you might do great works in our families, in our relationships, in our workplace, 
in your church, in this community. Father God, we long for more of you. Have your will done in Christ's name. We praise you and we pray. Amen.